I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I wanted to talk about a man like Mobius um, on Netflix. I also wanted to talk about the first episode of The Boys. And so I think I will just briefly talk about those, but I think I'm going to focus on the the new documentary that was our limited series that was just released on Netflix that keeps sweet about Warren Jeffs and the LDS um, church. It's like a four part series. I am in the process of watching it now. Um, so I don't know by the time I get to recording, I don't know if I will have finished it or if I will be in midway, but I definitely want to talk about it because Okay, so if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that as a child, of course, I like to watch cartoons. Of course, I like to watch, you know, sitcoms and things like that. Different World was one of my favorite sitcoms to watch ad nauseum. I I know just about every episode. Well, that and Martin. I know just about every episode of season one and season two of a different world. Season three and four, you kind of lost me and then you, you keep going and then I, you really lost. Well, no, that's not true. I there. Okay. I will say season one and two are strong, solid. I know just about everything that happens in every episode of a different world, season one and two. Season three and four is where it gets a little tricky, but I still know more seasons of, I know more of the episodes in those seasons than I know of the later ones when Jada and then the new people came in because I was over it by that point. Um, it wasn't fun for me anymore. It was like, it was like when um, Raven Simone came on the Cosby Show, and Rudy was no longer the baby anymore. Like it ruined it for me. Um, so anyway, um, so yeah, like outside of watching those shows, I watched a lot of PBS documentaries. I watched a lot of C-SPAN, um, like a lot of C-SPAN and HBO document or. Um, and, well, actually, HBO documentaries, I, sh- I watched some stuff I should not have been watching. Um, and then PBS. And there's something compelling me to the story, the story of the LDS, uh, Warren Jeff specifically in LDS, largely because, number one, I'm a spiritual person. I studied religion. I'm not a religious scholar. I haven't done that much study. But I I think I have a little bit of an interest in cults. Maybe, just a little, maybe. An interest in cults and cult-like behavior, especially around religion and how vulnerable you are. How, how vulnerable you are when you acknowledge that religion is a peak, well, not even religion, but spirituality as a part of your life. The, the, how easy it is for a devious person, just an awful person to manipulate, manipulate that belief. And then not only manipulate the belief, but in the case of a cult, uh, of a cult create a whole culture and a system of more of norms around keeping you connected to that cult, not your spiritual practice. Literally your spiritual life, but the 
but the physical manifestation of your physical life, like performing your, your religion. And I almost said Christianity, but the reality of it is cults is not, cults are not exclusive to Christianity. It's just, it's easier to, I don't know that it's easier to spot them. I don't know. I don't know why it just feels like it's more common to find religious Christian cults, Christian based cults than it is maybe because they just tend to pop up in the media. But anyway, I think I do have an interest in cults. And one day, um, I don't know, maybe I'll spend more time researching it. But for now, I think I'm, I, I think I want to pivot later to talking about um, Warren Jess and the LDS only because I see so many parallels between him and what he's done he did with um what's old dude's name that went to Guyana I can't call his name just now it's escaping me but um mm, there's a I can't I can't call it but there's a lot of parallels between the cult from the 70s where unfortunately they um the leader was out of control and when the U.S. government closed in on them at the, as, after he moved his entire or the majority of his congregation to Guyana, I think it was Sophia, the, the, what, what, they, what the Guyanese call it, Sophia, this little remote township just outside of Georgetown. Wait, wait, his name was George. No, 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 it was the Georgetown Mass, Georgetown, they called it the Georgetown Massacre, something like that, but it was just outside of Georgetown. Anyway, I can't call it, but I, as I'm speaking, you know about it. Anyway, where he led his followers to take their own lives by drinking um, a, a Kool-Aid mixed with a deadly drug. Um, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It's just not coming to me right now. But there, I see a lot of parallels there. I also see a lot of parallels between... You remember that, um, that Japanese cult leader? I think he was, he was either Japanese or Korean. He was an Asian cult leader in the diaspora... I think it, I think it's Japan. And remember, um, I think this was like 98, something like that. It wasn't the 2000s, it was the late 90s. And he had his followers, he had manipulated his followers into preparing for the end times. Yeah, so it must have been 98, 99, something like that. It was around the turn of the century. And remember when everyone was all up in arms because they thought Y2K, and I talked about this last episode, but Y2K was going to, you know, the world was going to reset. All of our computers were going to go haywire. We were going to go back to the earth and, and living primitively. And of course, you know, that never happened, but a lot of the doomsday prepping organizations popped up and made a lot of money off that. A lot of people were building bunkers in the years leading up to Y2K because of fear of that happening. Um, and anyway, this particular cult, I think it was a doomsday cult, like many cults tend to be. Um, and anyway, I really do think the guy was Japanese and anyway, but obviously his followers came from everywhere, but I think the guy was, the guy was Japanese and he was in Japan. And anyway, he had brainwashed his followers, coerced his followers into going into the subway system on a particular day and releasing some sort of neurotoxin to wipe out everybody on the train. 
and it was a huge it was it was a big deal because they it was a it was an org, it was a pretty organized attack and i don't know what happened to him but obviously and I, and i also don't even know if it was a predominantly woman like many of his congregants were women um because boy oh boy with it was the um, the branch davidians the group I'm talking about that um, ended in um, ended in them taking their and I'll go into this later, but the the cults that I'm thinking about the uh, Hale Bop that that group that cult group that was organized around Hale Bop T and Doe mostly it was it was uh, Doe that was left and then it was the the Georgetown group the group that was lived in California for a long time and then got put out of California or felt like they needed to leave California because of the scrutiny and moved to Guyana. That group and the, the, the group that was led by the, I believe the Japanese guy in Japan, like sexual manipulation was there. Um, a charismatic leader that was it's, it's something, it's the sexual manipulation. That's the thing that is just so wild to me because it seems like they all use the same playbook. They just come up differently, but they all use the same playbook. Eventually they manipulate people through their religious practice into pleasing them sexually. It is is just ridiculous, devious and very much in line with someone who only cares for themselves in any way. So I don't want to boil down what happened in the, this um, cult that was created by, the L, by Warren Jeffs and LDS. Um, or at least what I know is that Warren Jeffs and his people broke off from the Church of the Latter-day Saints um, either broke off or were kicked out. I can't remember which, but moved to Mexico um, to try to evade U.S. capture because, duh. And anyway, I'm wondering if this, I actually do think that this documentary is going to pick up right when the U.S. Marshals were cooperating with the Mexican Federales. I think that's what they're called to extradite Warren Jeffs and to free all of the women that were in bondage um, on the compound there. I, I could have pieces of this thing wrong, but again, I think, I think the thing that drew me to that story is the same thing that drew me to all of the stories that I was watching as a kid that probably I should not have been paying attention to, which is look at you using someone's spirituality, regardless of I was listening to something the other day, regardless of how a person believes. I wasn't necessarily raised this way, but I've grown to learn. I've grown to, in my spirit, my own spiritual walk, to believe this wholeheartedly. That if you are believe in a higher power, however that manifests for you, should be respected. Because at the end of the day, we none of us know for sure anything. That's a whole point of belief and spiritual practice. You believe, but you don't know. You have signs and wonders that help you to 
to grow your belief. But we will never know until we cross this mortal plane and into the next. Now, many believe, but people who are a part of a spiritual practice even believe differently, but we all believe that there is a, there's a plane, a spiritual plane that we cross from this life to the next, however that manifests, right? And, and there should be a respect among all believers. And I think there is, except for in many, in many fundamental orthodox religious teachings, or religious practices, there is some very, uh, anyway, there's some strong opinions on a- any religion that has a fundamental orthodox piece to it. There's some very strong feelings about other religious practices, negative feelings about other religious practices, duh. Um, but nevertheless, it is my view that we should all respect how a person practices that a person practices because at the end of, end of the day, we none of us truly know. And, and we won't know until we make that journey on our own. Um, anyway, why am I going around in this? I think because I was just introduced to the documentary and my mind is just all over the place thinking, wanting to confirm what I was, what I was thinking. Because again, I remember watching C-SPAN. Was it C-SPAN? It was either C-SPAN or CNN. I remember distinctly, can't call where I was because I don't remember the year, but I distinctly remember the vision of the Federales and the U.S. Marshals or whatever, whoever it was um, from the U.S. agent, whatever U.S. agency was crossing borders to do this, but to extradite Warren and his minions. I distinctly remember seeing the long range video of a bunch of women and girls dressed in old timey clothing, um, getting into these vehicles, just being escorted into these vehicles, vans, I think, and being ushered away and being on this compound secluded and isolated. And I distinctly remember there being some sort of mention. And again, this is American media, so you take it with a grain of salt, but there was some mention of when this happened at the time, there was some mention of cartels in the area. Because again, they were in Mexico. Some, there was a mention of cartels in the area that were beginning to like it basically make the, the, the U.S. media was making it seem like he was getting it from all sides. So he was getting it from law enforcement, from the law enforcement side. He was also becoming in a hard, caught between a rock and a hard place between the government officials, the law, and Mexican drug cartels. Now, I don't know if that was salacious, if that was just done because it seemed at, the, at that time we were, as a, an American media, the American media was obsessed with MS-13 and drugs and the quote-unquote infiltration of gang culture, MS-13 culture in the United States and and really putting the onus on these groups of crimi- uh, criminals and criminal activity um, and less focus on how the U.S. government was perpetuating that. Um, certainly, it, it was used as, uh, uh, probably used, it felt like at the time also used as a means to close our borders and all of that stuff and be xenophobic. Actually, to me, it felt xenophobic, to be honest with you. 
And even in this coverage of these women being rescued from Warren Jeffs and his minions, there was a, felt like there was some xenophobia in there as the cartel was being brought up. But I don't know. It just felt like it. So anyway, um, so I'm going to watch this thing. So I'm going to do my intro and I'm going to go watch as much of it as I can. And then when I come back, I will speak to, again, a lot of what I remember from the time frame and then um, match that up against the the foundation. Because I don't think I'll be able to get through the entire series by the time I record or I need to record for this show. But um, what I will do is talk as much about the foundation, the Doc is building and my own recollection of the time frame and the situation itself um, in the general conversation. But let me just circle back around and talk about the boys and a man named Mobius or uh, my man Mobius or something like that. Um, The boys. Okay, two things. I am not impressed with an irreverent version or superheroes however they became superheroes we all know that superheroes have their own origin story both the dc and the marvel universes all uh, some what we know about superheroes is some of them were born that way because they're alien superhuman uh, superman is an alien um some of them were mute mutants they mutated from birth of no, nothing, no, nothing they did on their own. It was no fault of their own or their parents. It's just, they were born this way. And then some, um, in the, especially in the case of, well, some are, are, have a lot of money and are smart and have a lot of smart people around them. And so that, that's what make them, makes them be able to do superhuman things because they have the technology to do superhuman things. Um, uh, an accident, some sort of accident where they've come in contact with some sort of chemical agent that has made them into um, a a superhuman. And then in the case of um, T'Challa, they've come in contact, they've deliberately, because of their birthright, because of their leadership position, have have come in contact with a element a natural growing element that gives them superhuman power. But either way, the origin stories of, of, um, of superheroes is kind of varied and interesting, right? But at the, at the through line of them, the through line of them all is at the end of the day, they're living on this planet and they have feelings and they, at the end of the day, they all want to be accepted in some way. And sometimes they're not so nice. Sometimes they're, they're human. Sometimes they act very human. And so they're driven by their own emotions instead of what's right and wrong. Although in the DC and the Marvel comic universe, there's a clear line between good guys and bad guys. What we know is that there isn't a, a clear line between good guys and bad guys. And I think in these newer comic book shows, the writers and creators are exploring that more, especially in the Batman I've always maintained, and I know I'm not the only one who ever did this, but Batman is not a good guy. He's a guy living through trauma, using his his trauma to propel him to become a vigilante. He's a vigilante with a lot of money, but he's judge and jury. 
in many instances, he's judge and jury operating outside of the law, even though he's friends with Commissioner Gordon and Commissioner Gordon protects him. At the end of the day, he's operating outside of the law. Anyhow, um, and he's a vigilante that should be thrown in jail. Um, mm-hmm, that if he if he did not want to sit stand for trial, he could go anywhere he wanted to go because he has the space, opportunity, and resources to do it. Anyway, so we we we've seen the backside of that, and even Stark, even Stark in those movies we saw, you know, in Robert Downey Jr. playing Stark. We saw him bucking up against the U.S. government to a certain extent. Let's be for real. Um, you know what I mean? And even Captain America, who's supposed to be a quote unquote all American golden boy, even bucking up against the system in a, a small way. They're not they're only going to go so far. And so, OK, so we have instances where we see the humanness, we see the contradiction of being a superhero, but then also being conflicted with your mission and what is real and what, and, and the struggle between understanding what is good and what is not so good, what is evil. And so then comes the boys. And I remember this, this season coming out, first season coming out and everybody just being like, what? This is interesting to say the very least. It's, it's very irreverent because you have these superheroes that were, um, being sh- being shown at, at, on the face of it to be these really great people, but there's a whole bureau of folks that are wor- working behind them to clean up the messes that they make. So they're, they're consistently having accidents where they're running through people and exploding them while they're in pursuit of someone else. They're hopped up on drugs, um, literally like, illicit drugs because they're addicts um, or they have a drug problem. Um, they're jerks. They're ma- megalomaniacs, ego, ego-driven jerks who, um, well, they're e- ego-driven jerks who do what ego-driven jerks do. They are perverts um, and um, horrible people. Or they're in abusive relationships. They're super strong. And in it, and even in this show, they still found a way for a woman to be victimized, even though she is one of the strongest women in the world. They still found a way for her to be victimized by another superhuman. And then there's, so they show that show, they showed that aspect. And then they showed an aspect of people who've been hurt by superheroes and they want to take them down and they want to stop the creation of superheroes because they call them soups because in the first season what we know is that a lot of these soups were given a serum that made them soups when they were children and their powers manifested how they manifested the serum worked differently for different for everyone but the through line was that as a child these babies were injected with a serum that made them develop superhuman strength Um, but did not. And so this Bureau of Superheroes collected them to make money off of them, but did not in the process train them to be good people, um, or help them develop a personality outside of their superpowers. And so that whole season is about non-powered people getting their get back from powered people and powered people wanting to be good wanting to do the right thing, helping the non-powered people, so on and so forth. First episode of season two, 
Oh, I'm sorry. We're on season three. Season three, more things happen. Season two or season, no, season two, more things happen. Season three. Well, yeah, season three, we open and one of the most deviant people in the show, which is the the golden boy, the blonde haired, blue eyed, most powerful person ended season three by being connected to a Nazi, a woman that was a Nazi sympathizer that had killed brown people with impunity. And so the first, the first episode, first half of the um, first episode of the third season, they're rehabbing his um, image. And that was immediately boring to me. It was immediately boring because what are you doing? And so here's the thing. So they're rehabbing his image. He's still a jerk, but they're rehabbing his image. They're rehabbing the image of all the superheroes. Um, the, their bureau is now cooperating with the federal government and lawmakers and the non-powered people who were chasing them are now a bureau in them in themselves who's funded by the government and they're working with the powered superheroes who are quote unquote on the straight and narrow. And that includes the megalomaniac whose, whose image they're revamping, they're rehabbing. And to that I say boring again, boring, boring, boring. The only thing that is redeeming in this whole first episode to me is the fact that Laz Alonzo was in it and he's still fine as ever. That is it. I am not pleased or enthusiastic about anything else in this show. It feels dumb. And also them positioning um, that Quaid man as being some sort of quirky, cute sex symbol, like um, unconventional sex symbol. Give it a rest. Everybody, most everybody in the show is white. So like you're, you're still doing this 30 shades of white thing and saying it's diversity. You have black and brown people in there, but it's not in any significant way. It's still very focused. It's, it's not fun to me. It's boring and annoying. And beside the fact, a lot of the DC and Marvel movies are showing the seedier side of being superheroes and all of that stuff. So like, what do we need you for? You cuss a lot and there's a lot of carnage. And what is the point? You even have a cartoon about the boys. I don't even know what that's about, nor do I care. I'm not watching it. I don't, I don't know what you want from me, but like, I'm bored with this. Now, if somebody else watches this, I would love to know if you're listening to the show and you've watched the third season of The Boys and it is more compelling than that first episode, let me know because I was not... Okay, so you have some queer characters in there. You have an Asian girl... You have an ambiguous French guy that might be that might be North African, might be a little brown. You're not really sure, but he definitely speaks French. Like, I'm not really. You're not really pulling me in, baby. Um, not uh, not that it's for me. And again, maybe I'm not the intended audience, but I'm just kind of over it. Um, anyway, so I, like I said, I thought I was going I watched that first episode or most of that first episode and I thought I was going to talk about it, but I don't. This is the extent that I want to talk about it. I don't want to talk anymore about it because I'm not, I'm not intending to watch any more of it. Um, so let me then move over to the other show that I actually watched a whole first season of and was about to watch the second season of, which is a man, what is it? A man named Mobius? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Man 
Mobeam, named Mobeam. Man like Mobeam, okay. Man Like Mobeen is a British comedy drama television uh, series set in Small Heath, Birmingham. Oh, I, I was about to say London. Anyways, created by Guz Khan and Andy Milligan. Guz Khan, you have seen him a million times. You have. Um, you've seen Guz Khan a million times. Google him. Yeah, yeah, you've seen him a million times. But anyway, um... So, men like Mobeen, I don't know why I thought it was set in London, because maybe that's my only reference point. But anyway, it's funny in a chewing gum kind of way, but it also feels a little bro-y to me. Let me tell you what I mean. So, Man Like Mobeen is basically, it's a South Asian drama. It's, it, it stars almost a complete cast of South Asian people and one black man. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I don't know if in British comedy, there are a ton of shows that, um, that uh, a ton of casts that are completely or predominantly, um, black and brown or brown and black in this context. Um, but yeah, it seemed pretty cool to me. So I watched the whole thing. Um, and so the plot of the show is Man Like Moby, Mobeen follows the life of the titular Mobeen as he spends time with his friends Nate and Eight. So Nate is the black guy. Eight is another South Asian guy. Um, in the absence of his parents, raises his much younger sister, Aksa, in small Heath, Birmingham. I have no idea where that is. Mobeen tries to live a good life as a Muslim and, his, uh, and ensure his sister reaches her potential while escaping his murky past as a drug dealer. Okay. So that is a pretty good summation of what happens. Now, mind you, it's a comedy. It's a comedy series, so a lot of dumb stuff happens in pursuit of Mobeen just living his everyday life. There are about, how many episodes are in this thing? One, two, three, four. There are four episodes, so it goes pretty quickly. I don't see him at one job in any of the episodes. He's not at one job. He's always out on the corner or at home. So... I don't know what he do, but he does make money, but I don't know how he earns it. Anyhow, um, but Mobeen seems like just a regular everyday Joe, um, urban kid living in the city. I don't even know if Small Heath, Birmingham is a big city or whatever, or a medium sized city. It just looks like it's urban. And anyway, his style is fresh. He looks, he looks like, he looks like, not a, not a yo boy, but he looks like he dresses nice. He dresses well. Um, but outside of that, he's just out always hanging out. And it seems as if, and I got to be honest with you, the, the accent is so thick and they spoke so quickly that sometimes it was hard for me to get what they were saying, but I was looking at the subtitle and even the subtitle, sometimes when I could recognize what they were saying, the subtitle said something different. So Netflix is going to have to do better on that front. But we already knew that, right? Because when you were watching Squid Games, we we heard from folks who spoke Korean that the subtitles were not exact. They weren't very good um, translations. In many, in many cases, they weren't good translations. And so it makes sense that when you have the subtitles on, 
for someone who is an English speaker, but is speaking in um, a dialect that maybe the Netflix people, they didn't bother hiring anybody who spoke that dialect to transcribe um, what was taking place. Or I don't know, the computer automated system, they didn't even bother to upload dialects into, that's, that's actually what it feels like. They didn't bother to upload dialects. Um, into whatever system that they use. And then also the people who are checking it don't, aren't really well-versed in dialects either. Um, So they kind of just let it slide. And so as a result, there are aspects of the show in the dialogue that I miss because it's just not an accurate translation of what they're talking about or um, not translate. Well, yeah, yeah, it's there's not an accurate accounting. It's not an accurate accounting of what they're talking about. And... You just kind of have to figure it out as you go. But anyway, I thought it was interesting enough, but it just seemed kind of a show about nothing. I think the most interesting piece of it to me was the fact that Mobin and Aksa, Mobin was erasing Aksa, who clearly is like a 12-year-old, 12 or 13-year-old child, and he's clearly in his late 20s, late 20s, approaching 30. And somehow or another, he's now, he is the guardian sole guardian of his um, sister. And so what we know in, I think, episode three, we learned that his father just up and left and perhaps his mother died. And I don't exactly know the order of which. Perhaps his mother died first and then his father just up and left or his mother, his father up. Either way, neither of his parents are in the picture. So he is truly all AXA has. And, you know, there's, he's, but at the same time, he does have extended family. He has uncles who come around and there's a whole episode where they try to get him. I think it's episode two, um, where they try to put him in an arranged marriage situation. Um, there's an episode where Oxa beats somebody up because... I think they deserved it. Um, and she gets kicked, put out of school. And she, for the moment, tries to play a parent saying, you know, I need to control my temper. Like, you're not mad at me. You should be mad at me. I need to control my temper. I need to find better ways to be able to um, to handle difficult situations. And that was a funny piece. Um, there's a moment where Mobin... Where Mobin is trying to talk to Aksa about um, the birds and the bees, but he never quite gets there. Um, there's also a very unfortunate moment. Again, he's a past drug dealer, and there's a very unfortunate moment where, um, in and trying to, so Mobin is actively trying to keep his sister safe and walking on the straight and narrow. His sister naively thinks like she befriends one of his drug dealer, his past drug dealer friends and, and trying to help Mobin, but then also seem like she's a, you know, bad girl. She helps to smuggle drugs at one point and she almost gets caught. Um, and so there's a moment where there's a teachable lesson there, but for the most part, I don't think the show is for me either, even though it seems pretty cool. It's like, I wanted to really like this show, but it was very bro at moments and definitely didn't seem like it was written for me. Um, 
I'm not the intended audience. Maybe younger people are the intended audience. Who knows? Um, It's an interesting, but not interesting enough for me to like do a whole episode on it. Um, And to be honest with you, because it was only four episodes, I was going to watch season two, but then I was just like, "Mm, maybe not. But I still do, you know, maybe you will find it interesting. And so let me just go through this real quick. So the cast is Gus Khan, who I know you have seen if you've watched British comedy at all. He's always the funny guy. He's always a comic relief um, South Asian guy. But like more than that, he's just a presence on the screen. Um, so Gus Khan plays... Uh, Mobin Dean, um, a reformed former drug dealer raising his younger sister and trying to improve his community. Tulu Ogunmefun is Nate, Mobin's best friend and advocate. That's the black guy. Tez Ilyas as Arslan Eight Mughal, Mobin and Nate's close friend, part of the chosen family to Aksa. Dua Karim as Aksa, Mobin's younger sister, often exasperated with him but loves and looks up to him. Mark Silcox as Uncle Shady, which is a perfect name because due to Shady, a sadistic and outspoken figure in the local community, but close ally to Mobine and co. Perry Fitzpatrick as Office Harper, Officer Harper. There is a police officer, a white police officer in here. So it's not a totally uh, brown and black cast. It's, it's got some white people in here. Um, Kyle Smith, uh, Bino is... Joe Vilbedon is a drug dealer. Uh, A.B. Fifton Edwards is Miss Atkin, Axa's English teacher. Yep, that is the the nature of it. It's on Netflix. Um, You should watch it. There are three episodes. There are three seasons on Netflix right now. This thing began December 17th, 2017, and it's still ongoing. Um... The episodes, though, were put on Netflix uh, in May, I think. Either May or June. Um, I think that, yeah, it was like May or June. Um, Anyway, but yeah, watch it and hopefully, you know. Excuse me, maybe that'll be your jam. Um, But yeah, I had, it was, it was entertaining enough to me, but not entertaining enough for me to keep watching the thing. Um, so yeah, anyway, all right. So I've moved there. And so now I'm going to go watch as much of the, um, keep sweet, uh, doc about Warren Jeffs and the LDS, his, his branch of the LDS church. And then I'm going to come back and talk about it. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'll be right back. Okay, so it's the next day um, from the first segment and wanted to clear up a couple of things or say a couple of things before I move on. Um, First, the group that I was talking about that unfortunately, um, through their charismatic leader, 
um, was led to much of them to take their lives in Guyana was the People's Temple. And everybody is aware of their weird and wild story for the most part because this was over 30 years ago at this point and it was so tragic and left such an indelible mark on not only the psyche of, I think, the American public to recognize that such a thing could happen, but also to all of the survivors of the transition to Jonestown. Jones, no, Jamestown. Jonestown. Jonestown. Um, it was the, the village that they created was named Jonestown after Jim Jones, the leader of that um, religious group. And I use that lightly because of what we know about Jim Jones himself and his own belief system. Um, nevertheless, I use that as an example and I do stand by what I was saying. A lot of Let's just take the cults of the last 40 years, the ones that have made um, made an impression. So I talked about the People's Temple, where I, if you're not familiar with the People's Temple, what we know is that um, Jim Jones was um, sexually manipulative to all of his members, no matter the gender. Um, that was sexual manipulation was a part of his thing. Um, even the cults, and I keep going, hail bop. What's hold on, hold on, hold on, hail bop, hail bop cults. Heaven's Gate, even Heaven's Gate, um, who was led by Marshall Applewhite that was named Doe, who took over the cult from T, who was a much older woman that I believe he at one point was a lover of. Um, Even his was sexual manipulation. If you consider he sterilized all the men. Um leading up to their mass taking of their lives um, in what, was that 97, something like that? When the comet Hale-Bopp was supposed to pass again um, and it hadn't done so in like a, a millennia or something like that. Maybe not a millennia, but centuries. Um, yeah, it was sexual mani- manipulation. Um there are other cults that have risen to the to the attention of the American psyche, and certainly globally, there are other cults that have risen to attention. What we know is that there's allegations that um, Jared Leto is leading a cult right now. We don't know much about that, but but let's start. Well, I don't know why I brought him up. It's just he might be leading a cult. Cults are not as cults or things that masquerade as religious a group of fanatical or religious people that are actually cults but are masquerading as um, separatist groups that just are 
just have it right, just have the religion and the religious practices right, but they really are operating as cults. I think a loose understanding of what a cult is, is the difference between a cult and a group of religious practitioners who are very strict as you can't leave. The, the cult is very difficult for you to leave. And now, mind you, it would be difficult for you to leave it in your orthodox groups at all because they're insular. But it's not, it's, it, oftentimes it's not to the point where your whole life may change leaving an orthodox or very strict religious upbringing religious practices because in many of those instances they create whole communities around um, that practice in order to support members in that community but when you're talking about a cult it's not just a question of well all of my friends are here and I've spent my whole life here but it's literally me walking away from here might jeopardize not only me, but my whole family. And again, there's a fine line that you walk. There's definitely a fine line that you walk. But one of the things that you can't definitively say is in the Orthodox communities. And again, when I'm saying Orthodox, I'm not just saying Christianity, Judaism, um, Islam. I'm also thinking uh, Mennonites, uh, the Amish, I'm thinking monks. I'm think and and orthodox can to me and maybe again I'm not a religious scholar so maybe I'm using it incorrectly but where anywhere where you've changed your entire life your entire life is not necessarily built upon being a separatist but you definitely your whole life is wrapped around or revolves around that religious practice. And so you leave a monastery. You leave um, an enclave of religious belief. You're, you're a monk. You're, you know, that is a lifestyle change all in and of itself. But when you're talking about a cult, what we what we often see is people who are scared to death to leave because of real harm that may come to them or their family, not perceived harm, not. And perceived harm, like, oh my gosh, my life is over, or my life will be completely different, and I didn't mean to be melodramatic, but when a person leaves those enclosed religious spaces, it it could be very much like starting your entire life over, but the difference is, and while, and while you may, it'll be very difficult, and it, it'll be very difficult, and you really will be starting over, in a way building your new life outside of that religious enclave, that religious group. Again, there's something sinister and deviant about cults. Regardless of what you think about the religious and the orthodox religious community, there's something very sinister and deviant about cults because they invariably, invariably, always lead to sexual manipulation of some kind and or personal destruction of an individual or groups of individuals without fail 
they always lead to those points. We have too many examples across the globe of cults that have made it there. There are TikTokers who spend their whole chance, they use their whole platform to talk about cults. Why? Because there are so many of them and have impacted so many folks. It's not just the people who are a part of the cults. It's the family members who those cults have taken away from them. Remember Nexium? That was a recent cult. Sexual manipulation started out easily enough. Weight management and um, financial uh, aptitude. Improving those skills, it was kind of under that. It was kind of under that those that the auspice of being being more healthy, a better person in total, mind, body, and spirit. But then also being being a better business person, being a better um, contributor in the business world. And I might be, I might not be totally getting that last little bit right. But the the face of what the group was supposed to be about was supposed to be about the betterment of an individual in every way. What it ended up being was groups within groups and breaking up marriages and creating an everlasting or an unending source of sexual pleasure for the leader of Nexium. It wasn't even a religious group. They tried to make it something like a religious group, but at the end of the day, it was just a bunch of manipulation. And now some of the leaders are in jail, as they should be. Prison, excuse me. I need to use the right terminology. Jail makes it seem like it's it's something cute and, and temporary. This is prison. I believe they're in prison in upstate New York for some serious crimes, including... Um, I don't know if sex trafficking was a part of it. Human trafficking was a part of it, but um, yeah, they're in, they're in upstate. Two of the leaders are in upstate New York in prison on some serious charges. Again, lending it, lending to the idea, or at least my idea. And again, I'm not a religious scholar and I'm not a cult scholar, cultologist or, or whatever the correct term is. But I'm an inquisitive person and have been since I was a child. And looking into this stuff for decades because it just fascinated me, the ways in which people will manipulate people at their most vulnerable point. And there's really no more vulnerable point that you can find apart from a child or someone who has cognitive impairments. Then, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but then someone whose belief system, who, whose belief, religious belief system to manipulate someone's religious belief system or someone's belief in, in, in improving their own self. So you're taking something that is so very delicate, depending on how you look at it, a weakness, and you're exploiting it. Exploiting belief to me, a person that exploits belief to me has a very special place in hell if you believe that. If you believe in that hell exists, I believe hell exists. Um, And people who exploit beliefs, a person's belief system, own a a special place in hell. 
something extremely deviant about that. Just extremely deviant. Not that there, not that I'm, I'm um, ranking the ways in which you could be a dastardly awful person to someone else and manipulate them. It's just there's something sinister about twisting someone's belief, twisting someone at their vulnerable point. Because again, belief is faith or faith is belief without proof, without definitive proof. One will never know truly until you cross that mortal plane. I said that in the, in the first segment. So belief system is just trust. And you are taking a person's trust. Actually, I will say that because for me, it hits really close to home because it, it feels to me how easy someone who's just really charismatic can manipulate someone who is someone who, who, who is a believer, who is a religious person. But the reality of it is a charismatic person can manipulate someone, someone's trust, no matter what the situation is. Could be religious space, could be non-religious space. Charismatic people manipulate other charismatic people. I don't believe that Jared Leto, if Jared Leto is, is a cult leader, like it's alleged, I don't know that that's based on religion. What we know is that there are other cults that, have, that were not based on religion at all. Uh, again, we go back to Heaven's Gate. Well... That was religion. Um, Branch Davidians, you could argue, were a cult, and that was religion as well. Um, Yeah, a lot of the American-born cults were religious-based. To a certain extent. You could argue that Charlie Manson's group wasn't religious-based. It was based on freedom. Folks desire to be free. And in order to be free, he, d- he convinced them to cause chaos in order to find freedom. But anyway, I say all of that to say the manipulation, to me specifically, manipulating someone's trust is pretty awful. To me, especially rel- manipulating someone's trust in a religious space is even worse to me. And that person uh, deserves a special place in hell. If you believe in, if your religious faith allows you to believe in that. Or we all can agree that when we leave this mortal plane and go to the next, whatever the next looks like, we agree we agree that there is a next. We just don't all agree on what that next is. What, however you believe, I, I, I want nothing but the worst for folks who are religious manipulators. Um, and so thinking about the FLDS, I got, I got the acronym wrong. It's the FLDS, the fundamental, fundamentalist, Latter-day Saints is this group that uh, Wayne Jeffs, whatever, Warren Jeffs, Warren Jeffs ultimately was leading. I wanted to clear that up too. And so I watched, I had an opportunity to watch all four parts and it was a rough watch because right off the bat, I noticed If you know anything about the LDS church, 
Church of the Latter-day Saints, Mormonism. Church of the Latter-day Saints, I believe, is an offshoot of Mormonism. It's very homogenous. And it's homogenous for many of the reasons we know. If you watch The Real Housewives of Salt Lake, you know that uh, old girl who was indicted on some federal charges for, for money laundering and scheming and stuff and stealing from seniors. <coughs> but old girl, she um, converted, she was raised Mormon, but converted to, to Islam um, on account of her husband. But that when she was a practicing Mormon, um, she was trying to get her husband to convert. And one of her husband's point was, I will never convert to a religion that doesn't accept me. And I think I mentioned this in the first part, but what we know is Mormonism did not accept people of color. And when I'm saying people of color, I'm literally talking about black or brown, Asian, did not accept people of color because there was a belief system that Number one, only a certain amount based on the New Testament. There's a there's a practice and I might be getting this wrong and I apologize if this is your belief system. But there is only a certain amount of people that are going to make it into heaven anyway. And black and brown people are even fewer than them. And so there was a for a long time, there was something like a moratorium on black and brown people even being admitted into those religious spaces. And so when you when you start to shift and morph throughout the decades and then you look at all the people who are impacted by uh, this rough, ridiculous case, I cannot help but look at how homogenous this group is. These are all white. But not only that, not only is it all white, but it's essentially like what, five or six families? Like, not five or six families, but it's also insular. And the fundamental belief that the LDS church outlawed, and certainly the Mormon church, and it's important to note this, outlawed was polygamy. It was once believed that polygamy was a way to be more spiritual minded and closer to your religion and also an easy way to help propagate the world with your offspring who would also be raised in the religious teachings that you believe thereby creating a more religious space which is gross if you think about it but moving forward um, but that was the basis and part of the reason why the FDLS broke away from FLDS, what did I say? whatever, FLDS, broke away from the LDS church was because they wanted to practice polygamy as a means of getting closer to God. Polygamy is, uh, polygamy to godliness. What is it? Cleanliness is godliness or cleanliness is godliness. In in this context, polygamy was godliness. And so, so they break off. And 
these leaders, one of the leaders was Warren Jeff's father's, whose name I can't remember, but it starts with an R. He marries several wives over the course of several years, including he was well in his 60s, like he was he was um, a senior, marrying girls as young as teenagers. Girls who were 19 and had never had, were never intimate with anyone, because again, they couldn't be because it was a part of their religious practice. You needed to be pure until marriage. Which I think is ironic because these men were not pure. If they've already had other wives, they've had intercourse, they were not pure, but these women needed to be 100% pure. It mattered not whether or not the man was, because at the end of the day, that's irrelevant. The man was to take as many wives as possible. And I won't go into, I will spare you all of those details because quite frankly, it's gross, it's disgusting. Um, And it turns my stomach. But what we know is that at the beginning of the break, what was that, the early 70s? Late 60s, early 70s, the beginning of the break. Leadership, the Warren Jeff's father breaks away from the LDS church, organizes the FLDS church and begins to institute polygamy. And so then begins to marry off all the men who already had one wife, begin to marry them off to more wives because also it was encouraged that women had multiple babies, which means that there were whole families who followed the, the Jeffs, the senior Jeffs, um, in this religious practice, believed in polygamy and had lots and lots and lots of kids. They themselves were born into LDS. They just went with Jeffs, the senior Jeffs, to break away to form FLDS. And in doing so, agreed to take multiple wives and the wives agreed to be sister wives. Oh, let me just stop right here. I meant to say this and I'm dis- I'm frustrated by this whole thing. The American public's ability or at least the American media and and the and entertainment industry and their ability to make light of very devastating situations is unmatched really. The unbreakable Kimmy Smith Schmidt is all about it's a quirky comedy about a woman leaving a bunker that was controlled by somewhat a man who played by John Hamm, who was supposed to be a religious leader, who it was implied that he was sexually manipulating the three women that were in here, that he had convinced to stay in this bunker. And they made a comedy about her. I keep yawning. Just deal with it. I keep... uh, They made a comedy about her starting her life over. Escaping the cult and then staying away from him and starting her life over. My nose is stuffed up. But starting her life over. In a quirky, funny way. And to be honest with you, the only funny person in that show for me... The most funny person in that show for me was Titus Burris. So, whatever. But 
I'm glad that that ultimately turned out to be a vehicle for him. But that's just some wild stuff that you would make fun of something so dire. Because here it is. Let me just give it to you in a nutshell. Man wants to be a polygamist, breaks off, but but it's against the religious teach the religious practice of the current faith system that he belongs to. So breaks off and creates a different faith system in FDL FL, FLDS. Takes a lot of people with him who are like minded and moves from Salt Lake after some allegations, move to Arizona and create another life. Um, one of his children, one of his many children, um, who. Uh, from his polygamist marriages um, found favor in his sight and upon his death takes over. This favorite child was Warren Jeffs. Warren Jeffs takes over and begins to run things. Well, not even at his death, Warren Jeffs begin to take over when the senior uh, Jeffs is incapacitated. And so... While the senior Jeffs is incapacitated, the uh, Warren Jeffs takes over and begins to shift and change the FLDS community in a way that better suits him. At Upon the death of his father, he marries all of his father's wives and begins to promulgate the community with more of his children um, and then begins to slowly but surely introduce new tactics and practical and, and, and new tactics and practices that slowly allow him to cede even more power and even, and at the same time, even more control over the bodies of the women that are in his group, but then also over the minds of the men who've chosen to follow him. They get into some trouble and then um, there are allegations of child marriage and and child manipulation, sexual manipulation. They move from Arizona and then they finally move to Texas. And it's in Texas where Jeffs begins to systematically remove from the community anyone who was still a believer and still following, but began to question. He, He implants spies and cameras who are very adept at catching people who could potentially have have expressed opposition to some of the teachings that Jeffs that Warren Jeffs has shared and and who might have an authority to challenge him and he begins to systematically round them up and then excommunicate them reassigning their wives to other men and telling their children that they have a new father in the husband, the new husband of their parents. And they hear, and then he systematically excommunicates the men from the community. In the process of creating this, this utopian um, society that he can control, he also finds a way to absorb the businesses and all the money therein from the business owners. These men, uh, because again, men and women were not allowed to get education or work. Their job was in the home. They find a way to have all of the business signed, businesses and deeds to the homes signed over to 
his church and Warren's, uh, the, the FLDS church and Warren Jeffs, which Warren Jeffs 100% controls. So when he excommunicates these men who are often doctors, lawyers, business leaders, he takes all of their money and their business with them, leaves them with nothing, takes their whole family, dismantles their whole family, takes everything they have and boots them out of the community. What is more? Remember, I told you Warren Jeffs is a polygamist and continues to marry multiple women to himself and to other men in the community. But what happens when women and if women's place in the home is to continuously make, make, keep the home and make babies, have babies. What happens to the males? If the women are, if the girls are bred, if the girls are raised to be married, what happens to the boys? Well, the boys become free labor. So remember, I told you all of those businesses that were usurped by the church, construction businesses, Um, for certain. The labor began to be the young men who were growing up in these polygamist households who were the children of polygamy. The men, the young boys and men were used as um, were used as cheap labor. And then Warren Jeffs both in Arizona and again in Texas begins to find a reason to excommunicate the young boys. So when they reach a certain age, they're removed from the community and their families. Their families first, their community second. There are press conferences that happen that illustrate this point that there are whole groups of young men who've been excommunicated from the church. There are more press conferences that happen from from older men whose families and whole communities have been ripped from them because uh, Warren Jeffs deemed them as um, apostates, I believe that's the term. And still nothing. Then we come to the point where I remember the story where women have left the FLDS church and the compound in Texas. And again, remember, there are lots of young men and older men who've now been excommunicated. So there's a growing group and a fatal flaw in Jeff's quest to become totalitarian supreme leader known as the prophet in his in his religious community, the FLDS religious community. The the fatal flaw is that when you begin to excommunicate anyone that had opposition to you, you begin to grow inadvertently a huge opposition front. Mind you, outside of the confines of your of your home, but nevertheless, you you create a huge opposition front. And so the cries against the FLDS church cry so loud to the point where Phew, bless me. They have women who are now women, but at the time when they were victimized were children, preteens, well, teens, young teens, go to the authorities and speak out on their case and enough of them bring strong enough charges and those charges are often corroborated 
by the stories of the men who've been, ex- the men and boys are young men and old men who've been excommunicated from the church, from the community grounds, that the U.S. government has an opportunity to then go in and hunt for, put out a warrant for the arrest of Warren Jeffs, put him on the America's Most Wanted Top 10 list, but also to remove the children who are clearly being abused, the boys as cheap labor, the girls as wives. Both of that is disgusting to say. And so they do. And so it wasn't in Mexico. This was in the um, FLDS had moved to Texas. It wasn't Mexico. It was Texas. And so you have um, Child Protective Services coming in and wrenching the children from the mothers who, uh, with cameras present, are begin to cry and wail. And the children are wrenched from these mothers, who many of which have willingly or are preparing to willingly put their young teenage daughter up for marriage. Because polygamy is, is close to godliness in their view. And so this happens and a lot of the survivors believe it's a victory. Only a media campaign begins to happen. And this is the good old American media that will really spin a story on a dime for their benefit, regardless of whether or not it is for the benefit of the people that they are featuring. But there's a media campaign and Jeff's is caught also, well, hold on. So let me just stop here. So Jeff's is caught the girls, the, the children are wrenched from the mothers. Before Jeff was caught and he was on the run, he was spending up. What we know from the documentary is that the, the, the church was sending him sometimes $300,000 a week, currying him $300, $300,000 a week. How can anyone spend $300,000 a week unless you were literally just living high off the hog every day? Meanwhile, the, the church members, even though they're vast, despite how many have been excommunicated, they're living hand to mouth because they need to make the financial commitment to Warren Jeffs every week. Also, they know he's on the run and they think he is being persecuted by the Gentile secular uh, law enforcement community. But he's, but he's caught and the children are wrenched from the parents and he's standing trial. He's wait, awaiting trial. Meanwhile, there's a, a media campaign beginning to grow. Larry King, CNN um, are involved and, and others giving the, the mothers of FLDS, that FLDS community, a platform to plead for their children back, and it is successful. To the chagrin of Child Protective Services, who were on the cusp of learning the true nature of how the children, the young girls, were being used. No matter the case before, um, Warren Jeffs continues 
And even in the courtroom, he's trying to uh, intimidate the young, the, the young women now who are going on the stand and, and testifying to what they were forced to do as children. And the men who go on the stand and testify what they were forced to do as children. And he's found guilty. And information surfaces and there's a raid that happens on the compound in Texas of the FLDS uh, community. And they go into the religious space and they find a vault that has documentation on every single marriage, every single thing that Warren was included with, tapes, records of him not only marrying underage girls, but also coaching them through sexual experiences. And one of the things that's shocking to me and stands out is that anyone would believe at the core, at their core, that polygamy was okay and it wasn't anything more than a way, a slow burn to deeper and more grotesque sexual perversion and manipulation. Within the documentary, we have stories of women who were being abused by, sexually abused by their husbands. They were being manipulated into polygamy. Whose, we hear stories of parents and siblings who were fighting to protect their their own self by getting out of FLDS, but then also scared and trying to protect their younger siblings who would soon meet the same fate that they did. The documentary is disturbing. It's only four parts, but it's disturbing. The way that they not only sexually manipulated the, the, the women, but the, they, those ridiculous outfits and the hair. Warren Jeff's idea. You look at pictures of Warren Jeffs, he looks like a creep. Even when he was in power and confident in himself, he looked like a creep because he was a creep. Not only that, creep somehow infantilizes him. He was a predator, a deviant predator who created a whole community, who manipulated countless people into creating a world that suited him and made him the center of it. And the other piece of this thing is, again, what I said, the thing that, that is, that we cannot forget in cults is not only are the people that are in it, FLDS still exists. I don't know if it exists the way that Warren Jeffs created it, but it still exists. That's what we, we learned at the end of the documentary. The 
But there are still families that are split to this day by the actions of Warren Jeffs. Warren Jeffs is up under the jail, up under federal jail. But the damage has been done to the families, to the victims and to their families. The families that, the family members who were able to get out and got most of their siblings out, but still have other family members who are cleaving to that religious practice. Families are split forever. He literally reassigned families to other men, remarried wives, remarried wives who were happily married to other men. And because the role of the woman was to keep house and make babies, that's what she did. You, because the group is so homogenous, he successfully tore apart whole community, whole families. There's something so sinister about that. Something so devious. I couldn't imagine being in a religious space and waking up one day and told that my husband is no longer my husband and someone else needs to be my husband. Is my husband. I couldn't imagine the amount of mental anguish that I would go through, the disappointment, the despair, I would be despondent. But then add on to it, what we learned in the documentary is add on to the fact that they could not, these women could not show that they were dejected at all because they would be punished. can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something so very devious about that. And the documentary says as much as well. Leaves you to... Doesn't really tell you why Warren Jeffs did that, because I don't think anybody knows. Warren Jeffs is still alive, and he's in prison. But I don't think anybody knows why he did it, other than he believed that this he was the prophet, and that it was his right to do. How disgusting. And that he's even sending sermons into this day from prison. Because again, FLDS still exists. The compound that he created still exists. And I don't know what's more heartbreaking. To know that most of your family members got out or that some of your family members are still in. And are true believers. Again, I find there's a special place in this afterlife. A special place of pain and misery for the folks who manipulate people at their most vulnerable point, which is their religious practice. Anyway, 
This might not have been your jam, your cup of tea. I have I put a disclaimer in the show notes just to make sure um, that no one who should be listening to this is listening to it. But I saw something on TikTok that said, hmm, another Christian, another another documentary about Christian people touching kids. And that's so short-sighted because while it seems funny, a lot of ex-Christians spend a lot of time poking fun at the institution of Christianity. But when you do that, you miss the point of so many people being religiously manipulated outside of Christianity. When you, when you put such a narrow focus on it, you miss all the myriad ways that people are manipulated all over religiously. It's, it scares me. It scares me. It really does scare me. Because ordinary people who are looking for some peace and tranquility, for looking for some order, for looking for meaning in their life, because for certain, certainly a lot of people, a lot of people are searching for meaning through religious practices. It's not funny to me. It's heartbreaking and, and just gut-wrenching. And I think we would do all, all do well to just step out of our, outside of ourselves for a moment, recognizing that the hurt that you get you have from your religious practice or the practice that you used to belong to is real and re- is valid and requires attention and respect but recognizing that there are the core of that belief system is not to manipulate i think that's what the such the, the that's what the frustration is about for me I don't know. I have more thoughts on it, but I, I, they're not organized, so I'll just leave it there. This, this documentary is disturbing, so I don't, I don't blame you if you don't want to watch it. But if you do watch it, I guess I think, I, I, when did you first hear about this? Did you, like me, saw it on, did you, did you see it on TV? When they were taking the babies from the parents? from the mothers is that how you were introduced to FLDS or was there another way that you were introduced I'd love to know I'm curious because I never knew they existed until I saw them on TV after Warren Jeffs was on the run and then cut to what was splashed all over news media which was the removal of the children anyway this was a heavy episode, but, you know, hopefully, hopefully you were still able to do those tasks that you were trying to do, and I helped you pass the time. If this wasn't your cup of tea, I hope that the next episode or a myriad other episodes that I have will suffice for you. But anyway, thank you in advance for listening to this show or sharing the show with anybody, this episode with anybody that you think might dig it. Um, thank you in advance for leaving, rating, and, and reviewing this podcast itself. Um, four or five stars are better, and your positive reviews I will read. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you so much 
for helping me spread the reach of this show and helping me to continue doing this hobby that I find, I still find joy in doing. Okay, take care. Until next time.